Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Out by Donkeys podcast, that show you're currently listening to right now. If you like what we do here, consider supporting our show on Patreon. Just $5 a month gets you Discord access, every regular episode early, an audio and ebook version of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and five plus years of bonus content. You can subscribe now at www.patreon.com slash donkeys. We also have new Stalingrad Street Fighting Academy merch available for pre-order right now at www.llbdmerch.com. So get yours before we run out. Now back to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Lines of My Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me still in the ruins of Stalingrad is Nate. Uh, how you doing, buddy? Good. I found a little German Stahlhelm. You know, I got like a like a kerosene burner underneath it. I'm going to make some soup. It's probably going to have some potatoes in it. Might have some cabbage if I can find them. Otherwise, it's just going to be hot water. But uh, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I believe in method acting. So last night I went to a Russian restaurant um, in town. I've never actually like there's a lot of Russian food in or that has made its way into like regular Armenian cuisine from the Soviet era. But I've never actually had like Russian food. And I have to say it was exactly what I mean, it was good. I, 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 have, to, I have to preface this with the food was good. But I must preface this. But not aesthetically <laughs> pleasing in any way. Um, no, 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 no. Like it was, which like, I'm not a food guy. So it's like whatever to me. Like, but it was very funny um, that like. I'm not a food guy is a very funny line from you taken completely out of context. Yeah, I, I, I just eat snow. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like flavors. Um, but like, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but like. It was like the it was called like doctor's sausage, which is just, it just looks like it's just bologna, um, and it's like a little squiggle of mustard on a piece of black bread. <laughs> like it's good. Oh, that's so funny. It's good. Uh, and then there's uh, like yeah, uh, um, it was a f- I forget what exactly what it's called. I don't speak Russian, uh, but it's like it va- uh, it vaguely translates to like herring under a fur coat. Um, herring under a fur and coat. It, and it, okay. it is. It, it, it's the fur coat mayonnaise somehow. Yes, of course, it's mayonnaise. Uh, ah. I, the best way to explain it to you is it, it is Midwestern food, but Slavic. Yeah. yeah, it was very good. But like when I the first dish comes to the table, I could help but laugh. <laughs> I, I like dill. And I, I mean, mayonnaise, you can just take it like here's the thing. They use salt. They don't undercook stuff. Like I remember being in the Q course when like the language instructors would bring in like the food of the like the region of like where they're from. And yeah, every Russian dish had mayonnaise in it. But like they were good. However, I was going to tell you my quick Russian, Russian cuisine story was I went to a Russian restaurant with some friends in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, and there are a lot of, there is actually a kind of Russian area of Seoul because there were so many ethnic Koreans who have repatriated because obviously they can earn far more money. They're treated and very, the, very poorly. By, during the Soviet era, they were forcefully deported. Relocated. Yeah. So these people are, there's a group of people that they call Josenjuks who are uh, ethnic Koreans from... Uh, basically, the Russian border area, and or, or no, take that back. Not not the Russian border area, but rather China, like the like the like Yanbian uh, Autonomous Prefecture and stuff like that. And then there are also people they call Koryosaram, who are uh, ethnic Koreans who were forcibly uh or um, what's that expatriated. They were they were deported by Stalin because Stalin said, "I don't trust the uh, <laughs> that the Japanese occupation of Korea." will not mean that ethnic Koreans will be, you know, infiltrated by Japanese agents. 
And so I am going to basically mean ensure that that you cannot blend in with any Koreans on the Russian border areas because there will be none. And he moved them all to like the Central Asian republics. So many of those people have uh, repatriated uh, through various things for ethnic Koreans to do so. However, in South Korea, they are absolutely an exploited underclass. Uh, North Korean refugees. This is my shock uh, face. Yeah, uh, Joseon Jocks, Chinese ethnic Koreans, and Korosaram are are very very poorly treated. However, because of the fact that there is a there are areas of because most Korosaram are they are Russian speakers, like they may speak Korean, but like primarily their 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 first language is Russian. Certainly, often the the adults like the language they were educated in is, is Russian. So, because those people have established themselves in Seoul, there's also now just like people russians working in korea in korea go there live there so it, it has transcended from russian-speaking ethnic koreans to the russian area of seoul it's kind of like brighton beach in brooklyn <laughs> like it's you know jewish immigrants from the pale of settlement to russian so soviet jewish emigres to russian-speaking people of any background who are moving to new york so anyway i went to this restaurant and this is the interesting story the reason i'm telling this and wasting your time here is uh i spoke korean okay at the time my buddy who I was with spoke Korean okay. And as one does, he's lived in Korea for like 20 years. Um, our server spoke Korean okay too, and Russian. She didn't speak English, but she was a white ethnic Russian. So we had to order our meal in Korean together. It was the only common language between us and this blonde haired, like literally blonde haired, blue eyed white Russian girl who was taking orders. The only common language we had was, uh, was Korean because she, most of the time, the people who came in that restaurant spoke Russian. And so it was just very, it was like, it was like the, like, what if a language school practical exercise, just like like a wizard cast a spell and made it real life? Um, I got some I got some stroganoff though. It was good as hell. I remember that being really good. And pierogies, or, or, I can't remember what the Russian word is, but you know the dumplings. I think uh, it roughly translates to meat pie because uh, I get yeah, them all they were the good time. As hell. Yeah. They were so good. So yeah, like uh, in the spirit, I can recall that moment. Uh, and now we can talk about uh, an environment in which one was not, you know warm and cozy and eating meat pies but rather um getting shelled fuck nonstop, H- having some dirt with mustard on top you know exactly yeah i was gonna make the joke that i'm boiling water in my stallhelm but unfortunately it's full of holes for some reason and it can't hold any soup i wonder why that is where is mine soup yeah <laughs> bo is bo, bo is mine soup gegangen. I, I i can't remember german so we're on stalingrad part three uh and where we left you last time, the German army had all but surrounded the city of Stalingrad, which they had leveled with the heaviest air attack the Luftwaffe would ever conduct during World War II. The city's defenders continued to fight at the outskirts as German forces slowly crept in. However, the Battle of Stalingrad was still not Hitler's priority. That was still the Caucasian front. And despite the fact that it sounds like some weird, I don't know, like indie band, like you could call Mumford and Sons the Caucasian Front. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Caucasian Front does sound like it's like it sounds like white supremacists who went to college, like they took like like white supremacists who who decided they were going to pursue the sort of like wear a tweed jacket and go to like you know the the parties at the New Republic that Leon Wieseltier was I think hosting. You're just describing like, Richard Spencer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I basically in a roundabout way, I was like like. But this implies that it's an organized group and like they aren't immediately written about fondly by the new. Yeah. Another like irony of this is despite like Caucasian becoming like shorthand for white people, whites like 
Caucasian people weren't considered Aryans by the Nazis until they had to be because they needed manpower. Yeah, like, like, I kind of understood it that Caucasian was sort of a term that was like race scienced into existence by the Nazis to be the sort of ethnic term for white people, but like it's not in any way applicable. Yeah, I mean, it, it just means the Caucasus Mountains. Like, te- technically, like, I am in the Caucasus, and the people who come here. I don't think they would probably describe Georgians, Zaris, and Armenians as Caucasian, as they know it, yeah. Famously perceived as white, Chechnyans, Dagestanis, Armenians. Uh, and, like, there were, uh, I, there were granted, like, honorary Aryan status by, like, Nazi Germany, but that was, like, a political thing. Hitler hated Armenians to the point that there was something in uh, the Wehrmacht called the, uh, the Armenian Legion. Uh, where they recruited Armenian POWs from uh, that were captured during the war, and like, you know, they're like, "Oh, we're gonna fight to liberate Armenia from the Soviet Union, and we're gonna invade Turkey." So, like, a lot, and not to mention, like, uh, I think most people would pick that option rather than dying in a POW camp. But he trusted them so little that he put them on garrison duty, and all they did is drink and uh like invite jews into the legion because they quickly realize that like germans are so fucking stupid they can't tell the difference between us yeah the race scientists actually really bad at their fucking job and it's interesting to me too because i was point this out that like some people um america we have a lot of american listeners and like many of them uh, this won't come as a surprise but some of you this might be a new thing to learn is that like one of the things i experienced as an american and i imagine you experienced too living even further afield in technically europe and like the literal like it, by some definitions like absolute corner of like like let's be real you are in asia but in terms of the like the sort of ethnography you is seen as like the the, the, the absolute term i get i see get thrown as eurasia <laughs> you are you are you are in the absolute most southeastern corner of europe you know in the sort of like definition of that some people use is that uh, when you look at, at caucasian people if you look at someone that people might know is uh habib Nurmagomedov. And he's Dagestani. He's Muslim. If he shaved his beard, like if he was, you know, people in America now in 2023 might perceive this guy as, uh, you know, being like, if he didn't open his mouth, like Italian or Southern <laughs> European. But the thing you've got to realize is that in Europe, like in Western Europe, in, you know, the sort of like, like, like fully the sun's giving you, giving you cancer immediately Europe, those, those guys are not perceived as white at all. And like that's talks about the kind of like, what you call sort of mutability of whiteness, but it's also just really important to remember that like those distinctions, because in America, whiteness is defined as emphatically not being black, like it shifts to suit whoever can form a majority in order to make sure that that black people and people perceived as black are, are being oppressed. Whereas in, it's, it's just different in Europe. It's been around for long before. Europe is, is, has microclimates of racism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the, and, and so like this is a huge, we're talking about the Battle of Stalingrad, but like it's just important to understand that, that, uh, that so much of the animating philosophies behind both, like let's be real, both Soviet and Nazi race science, because these are factual things that, that existed. There's a very comical still, Soviet picture of how to determine... Uh, the various minorities of the Soviet Union, and they all—it's—it's it's like the Georgian, Armenian, and like Azeri is the same guy with different mustaches. Yeah, different, <laughs> and, and 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 just like like doing like very very small graphic designer kerning differences on how close their eyebrows are yes. together. <laughs> yeah, until the the ultimate bridge is completed and you've come to Yerevan. <laughs> exactly, I was gonna say like like I, you know what? 
if, if, if something is psychologically like, like, like deep within the human, like the Jungian subconscious makes you uncomfortable and feel threatened by a unibrow, do not go to Armenia <laughs> or Glendale, California. <laughs> uh, uh, so Hitler was still focused on the Caucasus front, uh, which was going very, very, very badly due to him splitting his forces and taking resources away from them like we talked about. We're now in the beginning of September, and while German forces were advancing into Stalingrad, Hitler spent most of his time yelling at a guy named Field Marshal Wilhelm List, who was supposed to already have been in Chechnya. Like, Hitler's like, why are we not in Grozny yet? Uh, But he wasn't even close. Instead, the advance ground to a complete and total halt, as the German army ran out of fuel, ammo, and all that fun stuff you you need to have to do a war. According to eyewitnesses of one particular outburst at List over dinner, um, Hitler completely lost his shit. He did not understand why his military commanders needed things like fuel and supply lines in order to advance because they were still winning pretty much every battle that they fought. It's like, why don't you simply drive into Grozny? It's like, well, we don't have any fucking gas. Um, And probably, you know, remember at the height of Hitler's military career, he was a corporal. He was a messenger. He was, you know, he, he ran letters back and forth. He doesn't have an understanding of military operations. And at one point, he sent Alfred Yodel, the chief of operational staff, to yell at List for his lack of progress. But when Yodel showed up and saw how completely fucked List's supply situation was, he went back and told Hitler that, like, List is actually right. And instead of listening, Hitler fired him and put himself in direct command for about a month before he realized, like, ooh, I'm not so good at this, and then put someone else in the position. I mean, you know, everyone, every every fucking first lieutenant XO or captain company commander thinks they can run the supply room better than the supply sergeant. (laughs) Like, many, many a man has been broken on the rocks of the army supply system, and that's a much more comprehensive and just easy to navigate control supply system than what existed back then. It's like the meme of the show is like, don't make me tap the sign. And it's just like, take care of your supply yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, always, always. Lest, lest you want to be on the hook for millions of dollars of equipment. Uh, you know, I, I'm reminded of, of just uh, an anecdote from the William Craig book, Enemy at the Gates, when he described some of, uh, as regards the material conditions of the German advance, was that by the time they were even getting to Vornej, and not even you know to towards the in the Volga base and towards the Volga the Volga River, but not uh not yet encircling and then being encircled at Stalingrad. Their supply system had broken down so badly as regards vehicles that they were they were having to deal with um you know using like purloined French trucks shit that was brought yeah. over and like anything they could find and for horses. scrap parts horses yeah like. Their supply system could not keep up, and the roads were so bad. They were the supply lines were so dramatically stretched, and great for, like you said, seizing the initiative, maintaining the initiative, but not great for when you absolutely need to get people back to refit condition to like reconstitute a unit and have them at full strength for you know their their their, their sort of supply complement. Flashback to Friedrich Paulus being a massive Napoleon nerd and not learning any of the lessons of 1812. Yeah, Um, it is is really interesting because it's like if it had been some cryptic riddle about a thing you aren't supposed to do when you invade Russia, you could understand like the sort of like the the Greek tragedy moment of hubris overtaking you and suddenly being like like that, 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 that the epiphany there of like how you have been fucked by fate of like, oh, that's what they meant when they said this cryptic riddle. But it's not cryptic at all. It's like, hey, you probably need to make sure your supply lines aren't stretched. Also, it's cold and big yeah food is important yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's like the constant joke that I make about like the art of war. It's like nobody needs to read that book. It's just like feed your soldiers, have more ha- have more people than your enemy, perhaps beat them in a battle. Make your like, enemy think not... they are doing something different, or that yeah. you are doing something different. When they when when attack be, attack strong when you look weak, and it's like yeah, I mean I feel like cool, but like if you want to really massively poetically interpret that, great. But I think you can actually take it as literal word. It's sort of like. Uh, make your enemy think you're doing the opposite of what you're doing. Okay, cool. Have more forces than him. Cool. Be better trained than him. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I expect a field marshal to be perusing, you know? Well, especially considering uh, they, how much arcane shit they loved to test each other on in, you know, like both yeah. the military academies and then also in their, you know, command and general staff college. Like, good God, they yeah. were into like doctrinal definitions of shit. Yep. And, and this is where Hitler began to shift. Like, this is where the Eastern Front fundamentally is given enough rope to hang itself. You see, of course, at this point of his life, Hitler's ripped out of his mind, uh, just absolutely ripped to the gills on drugs. And he's not a military thinker like some people like to frame him as. But even he knew they absolutely needed to capture the Caucasus oil fields in order to continue the war, telling several of his military leaders that if they didn't, the war couldn't go on. Now, it's also very clear that he knew this wasn't going to happen anymore. So he changed his mind, deciding if they successfully cut the Volga River off, they could cripple the Soviet war effort. After all, it wasn't like he tossed up his hands and say, I surrender. The the Soviets were just not going to murder the living shit out of him in revenge. So he needed something. He believed now, suddenly, that if the Nazis capture Stalingrad, the namesake city of the Soviet leader, it'd be such a massive propaganda victory that the Soviet government simply could not survive it. It's completely unrealistic, but you I mean it's Hitler. That that it, that strikes me as <laughs> well. One of the reasons why that strikes me as being unrealistic is the fact that this presumes that information like that is going to be readily accessible and not controlled, yeah. and it really underestimates the level of call it information control within the Soviet Union. But also, the Nazis were no strangers to propagandizing and lying their ticks off to their people, like their own their own right. citizens. So quite frankly, like and they would throughout the entire yes. battle of Stalingrad. And I mean, like, that's as well. the other anecdote I think I mentioned in one of the first episodes in the William Craig book is about like, you know, cutting to the choir of German soldiers singing Stille Nacht or, or whatever, or like, O Tannenbaum on the front. And they're like, oh, then we cut live to Stalingrad. And it's like, Except everyone in Stalingrad is listening to the radio and like, that's not us singing. What the fuck are you talking yeah. about? Like, we, we now cut live to the, the choir of Stalingrad, just people screaming. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's a ministry record. Like, it's genuine. We call the song Der Frostbitten. <laughs> yeah. That's, I didn't know you could make synthesizers sound like Actually, I do. Because every time I try to program a uh, frequency modulation synthesizer, it just sounds like, like, like you know, the, the, the ode to Stalingrad. Like, every, every metal clanging sound you can think of. Um, I... I feel like, yeah, that, that's such a callous overestimation. It's very, very, I mean, I, I know that that's like the whole story of the whole saga is this idea that like it, it, the thing that has not that much material importance to the actual war takes on this sort of like symbolic importance. And thus it then it wasn't that symbolically important to the Soviets at the time. But then because it was, they made it that way, then the Soviets treated it that way. And it's just like the, it's like, it's like Hitler built God's perfect self-looking ice cream cone. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very it's it's very strange that someone who you know a, a nation, if you will, uh, you know a large imperial nation, survived something as catastrophic as the failures of the defense 
of the Soviet Union during the opening stages of Barbarossa could believe like, no, if we take the city, it's still to get collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like you can't prosecute a war effectively if you see your enemies as subhuman because you can only underestimate them. There was so much resentment to the point that like there's we'll talk about it later, but like there was a significant degree of what the people that the Germans called Hillsvillinga, like uh or Heavies. Uh Yep, so they're gonna come up. Soviet citizens who volunteer Hillsvillinga literally means like 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 volunteer helper, uh or volunteer to volunteer and fight for the Nazis. Uh you see a lot of this amongst uh in occupied countries on the Eastern Front. In from the Baltics, from Ukraine, from the Ukrainian SSR, uh, from Poland, you see people who want to help the Nazis. Whether it's 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 to prosecute the war or prosecute the Holocaust, and there are lots of people motivated either by the same politics, uh, a sense of sort sometimes of sometimes just plain plain old nationalism and Nation- yeah exactly P- nationalism uh in countries that have basically been absorbed by the soviet union or even pre-soviet union got sort of fucking you know like 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 arbitrary bordered out of existence uh people who were seeing it as pragmatism or people who yeah like had such incredible grievances against the occupation that they they became willing to fight against it like i've told this story before but you know i knew a guy uh <laughs> I'm not going to mention his name because he was a terrible army officer, but his dad was a very, very decorated Estonian, Korean, and Vietnam War veteran. And I one time looked up his name because he was a member of parliament. His dad was a member of parliament in Estonia and saw a photo of him giving like a commemoration, like a Veterans Day for Estonian Veterans Commemoration Day speech in front of a monument. And the monument featured a carving on, on stone of a guy in a Stahlhelm holding a, 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 an SS submachine gun because it was a monument to Estonian veterans of the Waffen-SS. <laughs> now, I don't know if that guy was a, was a far-right politician. That's the thing, is that he, he might not have been. But at the end of the day, like, let, you know, there's a lot of stuff that makes made the, 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 the content of jokes. Not everybody who, who volunteered to fight for the Nazis was an ardent Nazi, but like they still fought for the fucking Nazis so they can suck my dick. And at the end of the day, there was so much... The point I'm getting to, there was so much resentment. There was so much willingness because of like the fuck-ups and the oppression and all this stuff. But... They also were so like the, what the Nazis did was so unequivocally eliminationist and brutal that like they also engendered so many people who might otherwise have been willing to accept occupation to be like, no, I'll literally fucking human claim on myself to kill even one of you. Like they they made it once again, the idiotic, you know, misapprehension of your enemies. They created a far more vicious resistance, partisan resistance and like determination on the part of Soviet conscripts. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we're, like, about to, I, we're about to get into some crazy ass yeah. shit that conscripts do. And so, like I said, I know long, long, long dovetailing thing that I'm saying here, but like that's the point here is that like that it all comes back to what you said previously that ideology of being unable to see your enemy as anything but just sort of like worm like. Yep. Yeah, it's never going to work no. out. <laughs> now, like at this point, uh, it, it really does seem like um, he was desperately trying to grasp onto whatever good news that he was told. And Despite what we all know was eventually going to happen, spoiler alert in case you don't know how the series ends, um, the advance towards Stalingrad was still going well. The Nazis had even run into their first batch of American tanks, which were, of course, part of the Lens-Lease program given to the Soviet Union, and they were early Shermans. 
and they kind of sucked. The Soviets themselves didn't like the Shermans. They were too tall. They were too under-armored. They had a small gun, and their, apparently their transmission really sucked. Um, but none of this slowed the Soviets down. They continued to launch massive counterattacks in any way possible. Now, these all virtually ended in failure, but it never slowed them down. They're like, oh, that, one's, that one didn't work. Let's do another one. Now, the city's command was in the Tsaritsa Gorge at the time, but it had to be moved across the Volga because it had been bombed so badly that the tunnels under the Tsaritsa Gorge had turned into death traps. It was remarked that the air quality in the tunnel had become so bad that Khrushchev, who was the uh, main political officer for the Stalingrad command, couldn't even light a cigarette because there wasn't enough oxygen. That is when General Chuikov was called into Khrushchev's new command area on the other side of the Volga River and officially promoted to be the head of the army inside Stalingrad itself. When asked how he interpreted Stalin's orders in regards to the defense of the city, Chuikov answered simply, quote, we will defend the city or die in the attempt. After that, he took a ferry back into Stalingrad under fire to take command of the 62nd Army and then got lost. Uh, <laughs> now, remember, the city has been pretty much flattened with bombing and all the roads and signs are blown up. He did eventually find his command post by simply asking soldiers where it was. Um, and uh, there he met his political commissar, a Ukrainian man named Kuzma Gurov, who by all accounts was as psychotic and violent as Chuikov, a match made in heaven. Now, the, he ended up being, this ended up being a good di- a dynamic because another very important part of the defense of Stalingrad was the NKVD. Now, the NKVD, led by Beria, was insistent that they never listen to the army. So they immediately posted two NKVD units at every single uh, like crossing of the Volga with orders to shoot soldiers who tried to run away from the city. However, that didn't help things as shit rapidly collapsed within army units that weren't running. For example, one sergeant murdered his company commander, stole a tank, and then drove it towards the German lines just to surrender, which was really close to a solid dude's rock moment. But then he you know, surrendered to the Nazis. It comes yeah. up short. I mean, look, I understand if you make a decision like that where you're like, I'm being led by insane losers, assholes, maniacs. I'm going to die either way. I'm going to take the thing that potentially means I don't die. But also like, and people do that in any situation. It's just more like, let's be honest here. There are people on this planet, groups, etc., for whom that's probably not a good idea. Uh, It's like surrendering to ISIS. It's It's not going to end well to you. It's surrendering to like the golden horde. It's probably not going to work out for you. I understand why people do it. Uh, You know, Thankfully, I've never been in that situation. It didn't work out for Sergey, but I'm built different. Exactly, yeah. It it, it, it didn't didn't work out for every single male resident of Kazan in like the fucking 1300s, but who knows? Maybe they've changed. That implies that the Germans are the the, the Mongols, which is funny because the the, the Germans would talk about the Soviets being the Mongols, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. The Asiatic horde is the word that they would use. Yeah. Racism. It's bad. Now... At this point, the 62nd Army had been beaten to hell and back, down to only 20,000 soldiers and only like 60 tanks, but most of which were broken down and only able to be used as pillboxes. Chuikov had no idea where most of his army was throughout the city, and despite all the work that the Defense Committee had done, pretty much all of the defensive works that were built before the, the battle within the city actually started were destroyed uh, in the bombing. That is when the first true German ground assault on the city began on September 13th, 1942, kind of officially starting the Battle of Stalingrad at 5 a.m. 
The German left flank went towards the Mamave Kurgan, which is the tallest hill in the city uh, called Hill 102. Now, today, it's home of the Motherland Calls Memorial, uh, which probably everybody has seen. Um, it's like a Valkyrie on the hilltop. Uh, this is where the 62nd Army and Shuikov were headquartered. The right flank headed towards the main railway station and the central Volga landing point. All of this occurred under a huge amount of airstrikes conducted by Stuka dive bombers. Field telephone lines, already relayed about 10 times, were cut again by the airstrikes. Each time they did, linemen were sent out to fix them, running out to their almost certain death. Like, they wouldn't even wait till the bombardment ended to send out another lineman. So many linemen were killed that Chuikov simply ran out. He had to resort to runners, who also rarely returned from their mission. Germans advanced from the west and the north, despite an insanely fierce defense. It did not take long for the German 71st Infantry Division to advance into the city's center, right near the Tsaritsa Gorge bunker. When word got back to Moscow, Zhukov was put on a plane and sent flying towards the city within the hour. It was about now that the Germans were learning a terrible lesson. They had absolutely smashed the city to ruins, which made it perfect for defenders and hell on earth for attackers. The roads had been annihilated, forcing their tanks and trucks to advance at a crawl, making them easy target for Soviet defenders, who were hiding inside the burned out guts of the countless dead buildings and indistinct pile of rubble that now made up the city of Stalingrad. The Germans did continue to advance, but paid for it every single step of the way. Or, as Chuikov put it, quote, time is blood. Chuikov learned very quickly that the Germans hated two things, close quarters combat and nighttime. So he took advantage of both of those things, ordering soldiers to hold their fire until the Germans were so close that they were at the ends of their barrels and they could no longer call in airstrikes and artillery. They also conducted constant raids against them as soon as the sun went down. However, when daytime rolled around, the hard work of the Soviet defenders was again undone by constant airstrikes, facilitating the constant advance of German forces. The Germans were advancing so quickly that people began to question if rushing reinforcements across the Volga was even worth it, or if by the time they got there, the west side of the Volga would be under German control. In the south, German forces captured the main rail station, but immediately found themselves under constant, unrelenting counterattack. NKVD forces, reinforced with local militias, attacked in waves within minutes. In two hours of fighting in the morning, the station had changed hands three times before its rubble was eventually secured by the NKVD by the afternoon. And Chuikov did finally get reinforcements on the 14th of September in the form of the 13th Guards Rifle Division under the command of a guy named Alexander Rodosemov. As you can tell from the name, the 13th Guards Rifle Division, because the Soviets love to do stuff like that. Like, Guards was a title given to units that had, uh, like, shown themselves in combat to be a solid unit. So this is a good, strong unit commanded by Rodosimov, who was a very seasoned commander himself. And he'd fought on the side of the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War under the name Pablito. I don't know why that's important. Pablito. <laughs> but it's very, just what it is. But it's very funny. Uh, so yeah, we got we got General Pablito in the house. He was already a hero of the Soviet Union and would be named so a second time by the end of the battle. Unlike most Soviet leaders we talked about who ruled through a combination of fear and violence, Rodosimov's troops generally loved and respected him. Some of his soldiers liked him so much that if they got promoted, they would have you know they would be transferred to a different unit to fill another slot. They would purposefully turn down promotions so they could stay under his command. This seems like a rare thing in the Soviet army in 1942. Yeah, yeah, very rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Chewikov ran smack dab into the political battle going on between the army and the NKVD. The NKVD effectively acted as the personal army of Beria, who was, you know, effectively bulletproof. Nobody could touch him. He was, you know, uh, we talked about this before, how much of a terrible person he was. But most importantly to this situation, he refused to allow the NKVD to fall under the command of the army. On more than one occasion, he threatened to murder his own commanders and the army commanders who attempted to do so. NKVD forces in the city were under the command named Colonel Saryev. I can't really find much about him, but he was ordered to go uh, along with Rodosemov's troops and then fall under his command. His workers, militias, and NKVD regular forces were ordered to go out and hold up in several surrounding buildings and defend them until the last man, while others were ordered to cut off the Nazi advance towards the river. Zaryev refused to follow these orders unless Beria himself approved them. So Chuikov threatened to call Stalin personally and then turn him over to his army commissar, which, you know, Gurov, who is very uh, liberal in his application of a pistol to the back of your head. Ah. That, that kind now, of guy. Yeah. Uh, like he was going to be turned over to his uh, to the Commissar Gurov for refusing to follow orders, which at the time was a immediate execution. Sorry, I've decided this is worth the this is worth it to listen to Chuikov. This happened all the time uh, in pretty much the entire Battle of Stalingrad, where the NKVD and the army constantly bickered and fought. Now, the 13th Guards Rifles Division did not have an easy way into the city. They were only about 10,000 men strong though a thousand of them were not issued weapons. Most of them had only been issued with a fistful of bread and some sausages before being loaded into anything that floated from the other side of the river and then kicked off towards the city. Now, at this point, the river had been turned into a floating charnel house. It was full of burning ships and floating corpses from constant Stuka attacks. And just because the river was being bombed relentlessly did not mean the Soviets uh, slowed down their constant riverine convoys to supply the city. They just kept going. Like, well, we lost half of them to bombing. Send them again. The Germans on the other side of the river spotted them coming. And despite it being nighttime, the, the burning city fully lit up the river as clear as day, and they opened fire. Several of the ferries were blown out of the water, but the survivors kept going. The soldiers bailed out of the ferries as soon as they could, sprinting up the river's steep, muddy banks and directly into the German positions. The Germans, who had just gotten to those positions, had not had time to build anything you consider defenses. Some of the Soviets had rifles, but no ammo. Others had shovels. And others had ammo, but no rifle. Others simply had bayonets. They crashed down into the Germans, and everything devolved into savage hand-to-hand combat. One unit assaulted a local brick mill on the river shore and cleared it by beating the Germans inside to death with rifle butts and bare hands. The fighting was beyond brutal as the Germans tried desperately to hold on to the riverbank. Over the course of the night, the Soviets slowly forced the enemy back and by the morning had been secured. The riverbank, and therefore any Soviet hopes to hold on to the city, had been saved, and soon more reinforcements could be ferried into the city. However, the 13 guards' rifles had been decimated. In 24 hours, 30% of their unit was dead. By the end of the Battle of Stalingrad, of the original 10,000 men who crossed the Volga River, 300 would survive. That's the thing, right? Is that you can look at this and say, okay, this is an incredible amount of like grit, determination, violence of action, resolve, you know, unwillingness to yield. But also, 
in these kinds of situations where you have German units, exhausted though they might be and undersupplied as they might be, that are armed, that are cohesive, and you are fighting against them with, you know, axe handles and shovels and any rock you can find in the brick factory, you're going to take a fuckload of casualties. Now, you, given this the situation, you know, they will repel them, most likely. They will not lose. This won't be for nothing, but like, you're going to lose so many people. And it's like, it's, this is one of the things that I've encountered a lot, you know, both, you know, kind of assessing things in military history is so often you hear these, 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 these incidents of such extreme valor and bravery, but you also think, man, you shouldn't have had to have done that. That's a failure of your leadership that you don't have what you need. That's the subtitle to military history. Man, you really shouldn't have had to yeah, do exactly, that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, it's like... A lot of the things that helps us, like Rodosemov rode over with them. Like he was alongside his men, which is crazy. Yeah. And they had nowhere to retreat. It's yeah. like, we're either going to push them back off the riverbank or we're going to die. Yeah. We can't retreat back across the Volga. No, like we literally just, like we don't have the logistics to do that without becoming such incredible sitting ducks for everything they can throw at us that like basically will we'll, 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 we'll reconstitute our unit from 5% manning if we do that. Yeah. Like, that's just, yeah, 19 out of 20 people are going to die. Like we've got to fight them off. So in a way, 30% is way better than what they would have experienced if they had tried to cut and run. Yeah, it would have been way worse. And now, as heroic as this victory is, it wasn't anything serious for the Germans. After all, they still held the city center, and they held the entrance to the 62nd Army's headquarters under direct fire at this point. Chuikov was forced to relocate his headquarters for the second time already, and the real battle for the Germans and the Soviets was over the Kurgan, the highest point in the city, because it's obviously priceless for artillery spotting. Um, and mo- most importantly for the Germans, if they controlled that point, they could shut down the Volga River with fire. The Germans and the Soviets fought over the Kurgan tooth and nail, and the hill had been shelled so severely within only a few days that had been rendered into a moonscape. The craters from the shelling then acted as positions for attackers or defenders, depending on which they were at any given time. The Soviet defense collapsed into chaos, with German infantry charging their artillery batteries, only for artillerymen to fire at them in point-blank range. Direct and then, fire with the goddamn artillery yeah. piece. Jesus Christ. And then failing that, they ran out and beat them to death with hammers, shovels, and knives. Yeah, like the, the when, tamp or whatever it is that you use to stuff the artillery round into the fucking, yeah. into the breach. And they're just like, ah, just gonna hit you. It might have a soft tip. I don't give a shit. You're like, Dude, I was thinking about it too, because it's getting beaten to death with a giant Q-tip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> getting beaten to death with a lanyard. Like just fucking ripping <laughs> the shit out of, you know, I was thinking about it. There's also a Kurgan, like it's very funny to make this brief note. A Kurgan is like a, a burial mound, like a Bronze Age or like prehistoric mm-hmm. in some cases, like very early uh, human settlement burial mound. So in a way, like they're fighting over a hill of like Bronze Age corpses. Yeah, you know, like and they're just adding to exactly, it, you know? like dis- dislodging Utsi the Ice Man because you fired a one five five directly into it, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the UAE builds fake islands to create more land. The Soviets like we need more bodies yeah, on the hill. Listen, we're gonna. We, it's very important we control this corpse pile, and we will fucking defend it to the last new corpse. And like when the Germans finally did take the hilltop, they were immediately thrown off by newly arriving groups of Soviet uh, reinforcements who were just like had no battle plan other than like get up the fucking yeah, hill. Go. Literally, <laughs> like we had the corpse road. Now we have the big corpse pile, corpse mountain, corpse hill. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we finally have the uh, the Everest of our podcast, <laughs> a, a relatively low lying fucking bit of elevation that just happens to be higher than everything around it in a river basin. Uh, this went on for days. The Germans took the hill, were thrown off, were reinforced, and attacked again. However, each German attack was worse and worse because 
their skyrocketing casualty rate amongst their junior officers and NCOs. German military doctrine said that they should lead from the front. And Soviets quickly learned that. And not only were they murdered through the various means that people were dying at the time, but Soviet snipers began hunting them at, like they were game as they attack. Like, that's a sergeant. That's a lieutenant. Shoot that one. Shoot that one. Several infantry divisions are ended up being commanded by lieutenants because they're the only people left alive. All of this happened under a curtain of never-ending artillery fire and Stuka attacks, which, due to close quarters, smashed both sides equally. This is something that I recall from reading about this, too. As I understand it, is that the Germans were exceptionally well-trained in their infantry small unit tactics, but they really did not provide for the sort of, like, take the initiative, you know, uh improvise, adapt, and overcome kind of shit that the arm, the U.S. Army is, loves to pat itself on the back about having. Like, one of the things that was uh, uh, later on in the Western Front that was an observation of the Germans was that, like, the Americans sucked ass fighting the Germans at first, but they, if something didn't work, they changed it until it worked. Whereas the Germans were like, we have found the, you know, the, the mathematically perfect way to do this, and this is how you will do it. I'm exaggerating, but not too much. And so when, when everything is dictated, you know, doctrinally that this is how orders are given and how it's done, and, and the Soviets just go fucking like, you know, Team Fortress classic crossbow sniper on every single guy that's got <laughs> any leadership authority, like that, th- this is not an, a unit structure. This is not a fucking a tactical approach that allows for the kind of improvisation you're going to need in those situations. Like, what you know, did our, did our algorithm account for Gunther getting his head canoed by a Soviet sniper? This is such a stupid <laughs> fucking aside, but in the old, old days, because I'm, I'm almost 39 years old playing fucking Team Fortress Classic on land cables, I just remember being really good at being the crossbow sniper and nothing made me happier than every time I would zap my brother with it because the headshot would instantly kill the other person. It's just hearing him like, see, like, fuck through the wall because it just happened over and over again. I was like, and imagine that fucking sound of like the, the joy of ruining my brother's fucking afternoon is just like amplified times a trillion is how these like the soviet anti-lieutenant brigades were fucking functioning like all respect to the anti-lieutenant brigades you know, you know what the main <laughs> problem <laughs> look the main problem with the wehrmacht is they did not jump up and down while advancing up yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean i was gonna say i'm just i'm now i'm just laughing like anti-captain axion that's basically like yeah the soviet sniper special teams and also like every fucking private and specialist on extra duty yep uh, i i i, I We'll go ahead and enlist in this uh, in this new brigade. <laughs> now, the battle over the Kurgan was not the only horrible struggle happening within the city. The next site for this is an infamous battle. It was a large concrete grain silo on the bank of the Volga. The grain silo had almost entirely been cut off by the advance of Hermann Hoth's panzer units. Inside was a collection of 50 men, a combination of regular soldiers and a group of Marines from the uh, Soviet Navy. They'd armed themselves with a few Maxim machine guns and anti-tank rifles to augment their rifles. When the German tanks came forward, the Germans were like, these guys cannot possibly fight us. They demand the, the men within the silo surrender. So the Marines answered by firing a useless anti-tank round off the turret of a German tank and yelled in German for them to fuck off. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans began bombarding them with artillery and tank fire, but they refused to budge. The grain silo then caught fire. 
Smoke flooded the building so thick that the men couldn't see or breathe. They barely had any ammo, food, or water, and no hope of resupply. When the Germans launched their attack, the Soviet soldiers quickly learned they didn't have enough water to fill the water-cooled Maxim machine guns. So in between fighting off Germans, soldiers and Marines had to take turns filling the Maxim's water jacket with their own piss so they could keep shooting it. it. I knew it. I fucking knew it. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. (laughs) Soviets don't have a problem with that. Just fill it with piss, baby. Look, in military history, most thing, most problems can be solved with the proper application of the fighting men's urine. Listen, just, just <laughs> fill it with piss. Maybe it'll work. Artillery, mortars, machine guns. You know, the, the Humvee is overheated. Piss on it. it. Your soldiers aren't listening to orders. Piss Listen, on it. Listen, man, you already smell worse than piss, so it's yeah, not even... Nobody's even going to No bother. one cares. Over the course of the next two days, they fought off 10 German assaults. Eventually, when the Nazis broke through, the defenders found themselves out of ammo and the few survivors slipped out of the grain silo in the middle of the night. Battles like this were happening all over the city. Groups of Soviet soldiers were sent out in the middle of the night to garrison a building, fortify it as best as they could, and fight until the death or until they ran out of their meager supplies. Everywhere the Germans advanced, they ran into thousands of Soviet Alamos. You know, this is the thing I was going to point out that... uh when you are dealing doctrinally, as I recall, with an effective sniper in a combat situation, as the U.S. Army taught us, basically, unless completely unavoidable, you're supposed to go around because a, like real anti-sniper action, if it's an effective position, is like at a bare fucking minimum in like a combat, you know, exigency is a, it's a platoon operation, but really it's a company operation. And it's like, great, go around. But you, if, if literally everywhere you go, anywhere you go around it is another one of these. Like just the sheer volume of resources being expended, resources you don't have. And like, even if it's, if it's small degrees of attrition, losing people in these engagements, multiplied times, you know, infinity, like you are going to attrit so badly you become combat ineffective. Every single place you like you every time you step around a corner, your captain gets his head turned into mist and you just hear Sukabliat coming from all the windows like, oh, God, God damn it. And it's, like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's like it's embarrassing enough that we're, 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 we're sacrificing fucking, you know, her, heroic volumes of combat power to defend corpse pile, you know, ancient corpse pile <laughs> with new corpses on top. Like now it's basically like corpse lasagna, if right. you will. <laughs> It's basically becoming like, it's like, yeah, the heroic defenders who perish at the battle of like, you know, Stalingrad, or like, yeah, Stalingrad manhole company's sewer position number 15. Like, you, you, you lost, lost his arm and leg and eye in the battle for like public toilet number 31. Like, it's just, this is unreal, man. Yeah, it's like, it's like um, every school, every factory, every random apartment block like every single one was just like no we're gonna we're gonna turn this into the worst fucking week of your this life is, this is tenacious defense like this is genuinely like they are defending it's not suicidal defense but it's making it as unpleasant as possible for these guys to advance like this is yeah the battle of stalingrad quite unpleasant <laughs> who would have thought like fucking this is basically like you have for i don't know if there's a better word either you call it radicalized or activated a kind of defense that is going to make everything fucking shit. And, and as we discover, as we go on, the more they decided they had to hit everything, the more, like, the more they pressed, the more def- you know, tenacious they made that defense. 
And at the end of the day, their backyard is next door. You are, what, a thousand miles from what you'd call true friendly lines in the sense that like in the occupied uh, Eastern sort of, you know, I can't remember what the name they use for those, the regions uh, that these, you know, anything you did for a resupply was being hit with partisan attacks. Like they are really very far from true friendly lines. Like everything is trying to kill you. Everything, everything speaks various different accented forms of Russian and it all wants you, you to know, die. Uh, the, the, the Polish <laughs> author, Richard Kapuscinski, uh, talked about visiting uh, a mine in Siberia. I think this would have been in the 80s or maybe early, early 90s. It was right around the collapse of the Soviet Union or right before it. Uh, the place is called Vorkuta. And uh, he talks about, you know, the Yasinik uh, Vorkut, the 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 misery of uh, of of the mines in the winter and the housing in the winter and everything, but then also the misery of it in the summer. And he there's this line because because Kapuscinski was a very and was a poet, but a very very poetic writer in his war correspondence. And one of the things he said is that in Siberia, you know, you get the sensation that nature sees mankind as a pestilence it wants to rid itself of as soon as possible. That he's like, yeah, we just call that Ohio that, in the U.S. That everything is just alive and trying to eat you and kill you. And it's like, good job, guys. You've created Siberian summer with artillery rounds and axe handles on the Volga River. As a friend of the show, Milo Edwards once put it, Russians and Soviet uh, and people from the former Soviet Union could get through a lot of things by just shrugging, saying "peace, deaths." <laughs> uh, a side note, but this was a thing that I realized I appreciated Milo's uh, explanation of "peace, deaths." Is this a uh, very, very uh, versatile word when they were playing um, like intercepted recordings of some of the this guys from Russian units in Ukraine complaining about some of the, the dumb shit they're being like being strung out, put out in these positions. Like you're just going to get fucking killed. They're going to hit you with everything. And he's just like, yeah, it's fucked up. And you go out there like 100 percent. You're going to get killed. Like everywhere you go, you're getting shot at or blown up his debts. And it's just like, I knew exactly what you mean there. <laughs> Now, uh, warehouses, apartments, department stores, and in one case, a nail factory were turned into meat grinders for days at a time. One up in one apartment building, a battalion of Soviet soldiers fought on for five days, turning the entire area around the building into a killing field. By the end, only six members of the battalion survived and got off the back. For non-military listeners, it varies between countries and so on. But in the regimental system, a battalion is typically, let's say, around... 500 to 700 people uh in an infantry like in a light infantry unit it's probably going to be slightly fewer in a heavy infantry unit it'll be more just because there's so many people and this is i only understand it really from the the u.s army but so imagine it's similar in this in the soviet military 700 people and very like you said what six people were left a dozen yep yeah Yep. six Six. so six so basically that is a uh let's see if nate can do do math on on a thursday afternoon that's a 99% casualty rate and not, not casualty like, <laughs> then, like, ooh, he infected toenail, like casualty, like dead, dead, dead casualty, like, like, and yeah. like, like added Just, to the corpse lasagna casualty. Yeah. When, when they would abandon a position, they could only like take the wounded that they could take and everybody else was left behind to like, well, enjoy fighting to the death. Bye. You know, oops. Shit. Uh, yes. Uh, the main rail station had fallen to the Germans, but was completely unusable due to the massive damage it sustained during the fighting. It changed hands 15 times in less than a week and reduced to nothing but ruins and corpses. They were also pressing in like a closer attack on the central landing area on the Volga, where the Soviets landed pretty much all of their ferry trips, supplies, manpower, vehicles, everything crossed the Volga. It was through these that everything came into the city. 
and you know the Nazis could shoot at them or whatever, but they could the Soviets could still land them on the bank. Cutting this off would mean the death of the city, and the Soviets knew it. Chuikov kept landing reinforcements in the area to throw the Germans back no matter what. But the Germans held, and eventually the Nazis managed to cut the entire city of Stalingrad in half. With the city cut in two, the Nazis focused on, you know, we're going to clear this half first. And they focused on the south, which rapidly collapsed. The southern part of the city was largely defended by workers' militias and led by the NKVD, but there were some regular army units and navy units amongst them. Commanders and commissars kind of saw how hopeless the situation was, caught out, like truly cut off. The, the Volga pipeline could not reach them down there. And uh, they would pretend like, I got a commissar meeting, and then they would abandon their men and try to cross the Volga. When soldiers figured out that they weren't coming back, they broke from their positions and ran to the banks of the Volga themselves and began sl- slapping together rafts out of everything they could find just to get to the safety of the other side. One man made it across by riding a tree trunk. <laughs> the lowest officer on the totem pole freaked out when he saw what was going on. And rather than try to control it, tell Chuikov what was happening, you know, be honest, he sent reports to the 62nd Army headquarters over the radio saying that everything was going just great. When Chuikov finally did learn about the realities of the southern part of, uh, of Stalingrad, he had that officer executed for lying. Sucks <laughs> to suck. Yeah. I guess I mean it. Uh, yeesh, yeah, bad situation all around. I don't think honesty would be the best policy in this situation right. either. You but didn't really, I think that guy was getting clapped didn't either really way. Get like George Washington can't tell a lie. Fucking you know brownie points if you want to call mix the metaphors for fucking be like, oh, sir, let me let me give you an accurate representation of of what's happening here. I mean, uh, yeah. Mm. And I'm not going to like, give oh, you the U.S. Army would never like us. Like, God, you, I'm sure you dealt with this all the time. You deal with shit. Like, yep, uh, yep, successful patrol, no significant acts. And it's like, because you guys didn't leave the wire, didn't actually go on patrol. Like, that's right, baby. So everybody loves a ghost, ghost patrol. Patrols, that's what they are. But it's like one of these things where, where, yeah, you, you're fucked either way. But like, um, yeah, I, I do think that that that, that even in the the the, the um, kind of. Uh, apotheosis of being unreasonable that's the soviet military doctrine your commander probably wants to know that you know it's turned into fucking water world across the river yeah (laughs) the germans were now being ground to a nub by the soviet defenders and chuikov knew it he ordered their front line should never be more than 50 yards away from the nazis therefore rendering their artillery and air support useless and forcing the germans to fight them in close quarters within a week the german soldiers who thought they had already have secured the entire city, found themselves burying thousands of their comrades. Soviet snipers waited for them around every corner, and any large group of German soldiers was immediately targeted by artillery. On the, from like the, All the artillery is normally on the other side of the river. They could just make it rain. And constant nighttime raids meant that anybody who didn't get clapped by the first two things hadn't slept for days. The same went for their own pilots. Stuka pilots are flying nonstop to the point of delirium, and their methed out tweaking brains can no longer figure out like where the German positions were, even though they had giant like cross symbols to show like, hey, friendlies here. So when Germans started hearing Stuka dive bombers overhead, it stopped being like comforting because like uh, they're gonna fucking bomb us again. And it's important to bear in mind, if I'm not misremembering, the Stukas have a whistle thing kind of like the whistle goes woo woo fucking whistle tip inside siren i don't know if it's on the wings or somewhere but it makes this shrieking howling sound when they dive 
So like you fucking hear them coming and it was meant to scare you. But like that was like like Joe was saying, it's meant to be reassuring. But if if <laughs> in the days before night vision and infrared beacons, you know, given that we still often got fucking shot by our own people. In the days <laughs> yeah. where it was just like, God, I hope that dude guesses well. That is not reassuring. Yeah, here comes like Helmut, yeah. who's been flying nonstop for three weeks. With he's more meth than man yeah, at this exactly. point. It's like it's like this. This man is more like Pervitin than pilot. Yeah. Jurgen basically could get post the best UK rave comment ever, except he is fully shelling or you know fucking strafing his own position. One German officer said, quote, the air is filled with the infernal howling of diving stukas, the thunder of flak and artillery, the roar of engines, the rattle of tank tracks, the shriek of the Stalin organ, the clatter of submachine guns, and all of the time one feels the heat of the burning city on their back. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I guess I hope that uh, things got better for Second Lieutenant Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. <laughs> yeah, I, I I hope he did not suffer for long, and by that I mean dies. Like like, hey, I'll I'll write my next entry once I have break, and then it just stops mid syllable. Yeah, be home by Christmas as like a, a Katusha a Katusha rocket impales him against the burned out supermarket. Do we have time to talk just, about the the Stalin organ? Because I feel like that's a thing that we we I don't know if we've, if we've talked about in uh in detail. We talked about it a little bit rocket yeah. launcher, but they had this. Because of the sound it made, they had this, uh, this this name for it, you know, in the way that like, this is a thing that you find very often in any kind of military engagement. Like when there's a particular piece of equipment that be, you know, is used and is familiar, like the soldiers will give it a, a nickname, like a, a, you know, kind of colloquialism for it. And it's like, it sounds, I don't know, like kind of, it, it, it's weird. It sounds both like goofy and also very heavy metal too like there's something very strange right. about it. it it sounds very very cool like oh man it's like because it sounds like the shrieking of pipe organs but the way they call it stalin's organ it just sounds like it's a yeah i don't know i i can't recall because it's it's stalin in german but i can't remember if because my german is just not that good enough to whether or not organ organ specifically means like a church organ only or if it has the kind of like either synonym meaning the way that we have like like you said like stalin's dick i don't know <laughs> Like, uh, inside of you, there are two wolves. Yeah. One plays the organ and one makes jokes about Joseph Stalin's But also, penis. like, if it's Stalin, if that's actually the double entendre there and it's Stalin's dick, does that imply that, like, Stalin's organ is a piano and every key is a dick? We must go further. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, meanwhile, despite, you know, them being, on he being in hell, reports being sent back to Berlin made everything sound great. At one point, they outrightly said that they had captured Stalingrad. See, once again, it's like the man forgets to like, yeah, you know, he he forgets to fucking report that it's like, you know, the, 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 the beach park at fucking Santa Claus land. And now these guys are like, oh, we, we literally achieved our objective. Please don't inquire any further. This is just like the golden age of putting, passing up bullshit reports, isn't it? It was ran in um, Der Stürmer that, like, you know, we had captured Stalingrad. And, of course, the, like, Soviet intelligence agents were getting copies of it and, like, sending them back to the Soviet Union. And, like, the report of this was sent to Stalin, who, like, led to a lot of confusion. Like, did Stalingrad fucking fall? Did we miss something? Yeah, the, it, it, I think the combination of fog of war and Stalin's paranoia and all this stuff, it's like, this. this is both, like, like ultra Dewey defeats Truman, but then also it's basically the, the, the metaphor extends to if Harry Truman is like, wait, what the fuck? Did Dewey beat me? Shit! 
I apologize, uh, Tovarish Stalin, but uh, we probably should not trust something called Der checks the paper. <laughs> Der Sturmer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's just like it's like, like like his aide having to explain like like I had to explain to my mom one time that you can't trust everything on Facebook, but it's Joseph Stalin. Like, like the, 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 the often often for good reason malign Nick Mullen, but had the fucking the, the thing about like oh you're you're so unwilling to re, you know to consider other sources. You say you want freedom of speech and keep an open mind, and you won't trust this article from racism.com. Like <laughs> <laughs> like literally like free internet racism.com doesn't get more racism.com in its in its print like printing press days than fucking Der Sturmer. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, before he started Der Sturmer, I think Julius Straker had a, a newspaper called like Anti-Semitism Weekly or <laughs> something so like that. French is what you're saying. <laughs> like a guy I know like, online who's a Swiss historian. It was like, it was like the, it was like literally called like the Anti-Semitism Bulletin or something like that. There's a guy I know who's a French historian. His name is Lais Farah. Uh, he does a, a video show. It's great. Uh, mostly about the history of religion, but it's all in French. Uh, he was doing research on this and he said, he posted this that he had found in a source he was reading uh, uh, basically like this description records from a guy's office who was like a wealthy French businessman when when Algeria was just a like Department of France. And he described, he's identified between these records something like 98 different anti-Semitic like periodicals and weeklies. And they were all like, they were called like anti-Semitism monthly, anti-Jew, anti-Jew <laughs> weekly. Like there were so many of them. Jesus this was in like the, the, the Dreyfus era, in like the very end of the uh, nineteen, uh, the yeah, the nineteenth century. Christ, uh, <laughs> and uh, like this, not only went for the military, but the German press, the press, which was obviously just a propaganda arm of the Nazi state, was so optimistic about the Battle of Stalingrad that even Joseph Goebbels had to be like, "You guys need to calm down." I just <laughs> like stop. stop imagine pumping out so much pro Nazi propaganda that Joseph Goebbels like, guys, you need to. Pump the brakes. That, um, <laughs> I just, yeah, that is, that is a very funny thing to envision, isn't it? Just, yeah, like the extent to which you're just like, hey, um, the man literally in charge with doing fucking brain control on people is just like, um, hey, uh, we might have some fallout when people kind of learn that we bullshit at this one. There might be some problems. Are you guys sure? Is this just like, hey, we got we called it early, but we called it right, and it's like, I regret to inform you. No. <laughs> Goebbels gets off the phone. He's like, you know, I was just talking to my correspondent in Stalingrad, and this is what he had to say. He just hits a button and you just hear, oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> this, like, fucking scary organ sounds from the Stalin organ. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's dick? on fire! <laughs> Soon people were asking Paulus why the fuck he hadn't won yet. After all, people said, the Sixth Army was now the largest formation in the entire German military. How come he wasn't winning with it? And Paulus began to have a nervous breakdown and he developed a facial tick, which he'd have for the rest of his life. Yeah. Not only were... <laughs> like, I'm not saying like, oh, poor Paulus, but it's very I mean, funny like, that he was being harassed by Hitler so bad he developed a facial tick. I mean, tick. it's one of those things where it's like people in incredibly stressful situations will have these, like, I don't know what the actual like physical thing is, but will have a stress response where like they'll go gray overnight. Or, you know, like they'll develop a gray patch on their hair. Like this is, I mean, I, I think some of this is apocryphal, but like I do also think there have been instances of this where people having really, really dramatic changes uh, because of just intense stress and stress hormones and all this stuff. And to me, I'm just sort of like, 
I feel like if there's a place where you're going to have a stress-induced facial tick that's permanent, Stalingrad seems like a pretty valid explanation, like a pretty valid reason for why that developed. It's like, I I have a little bit of a nervous habit of always aggressively checking my blind spot because I accidentally cut a dude off and then he walked out of his truck with a gun uh, when I lived in Alaska. Uh... But that's not Stalingrad. <laughs> that's like that's like a, that's like the best day you could have in Stalingrad was a redneck threatened you with a gun. <laughs> so out of the wreckage of like gastronom number six <laughs> comes like Billy Bob from Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Alaska for some reason, but still with with anger with, with yeah. Arkansas plates. Yeah. Now this not only were was Paulus's soldiers being savage inside the city. It's not like the German and Allied forces surrounded it were being left alone. Outside of Stalingrad is effectively featureless flat step and had turned into something akin to World War I, with trench systems and constant Soviet counterattacks flooding across the open terrain and battering the German and Romanian positions with the weight of their bodies. It was also getting colder and raining constantly, churning everything into a mud that we have talked about before on the show called Rasputitsa or roadlessness, because it just churns everything into a slurry. Though sitting in a trench as it filled up to your knees with rain and you get trench foot was a much better life than what was going inside the city itself, probably the only time in history that being stuck in a trench was a preferable alternative. In the city, German and Soviet forces crept around in small teams, ambushing one another over something as meaningless as an apartment kitchen. The close quarters, room-to-room fighting, broke down all military training and doctrine as neither side had ever planned or trained for urban combat. Soldiers struggled to the death down hallways and over bedrooms, and hour-long fights would occur that would split the control of a single house. In one case, while fighting over a brick warehouse for days, the first floor was controlled by the Soviets, the Germans controlled the next floor, and the Soviets controlled the floor over that, resulting in a layer cake of violence. The German soldiers fighting in these close quarters under piles of rubble and even throughout the sewer system, armed with axes, guns, and knives and flamethrowers, nicknamed it Rottenkrieg, or the Rat War. Uh, this hate it when this a rotten league breaks out. <laughs> <laughs> this turned out was a kind of war that the Soviets excelled at. Now, this is not a co- this is not a credit to the Soviet military. It's a credit to the common Soviet soldier because their small unit commanders were terrible, and none of them had any training to speak of on the topic independently, they learned how to become masters of camouflage, while soldiers from the rural areas of the Soviet Union taught their comrades how to stalk, track, and hunt down Nazi soldiers in the rubble like they were hunting back home. Others, gangsters and hood rats from the city, taught their comrades how to fight and kill with close-quarters weapons like knives. They jokingly called this the Stalingrad Academy of Street Fighting. Teams of six or eight men would sneak out at night, armed with knives or sharpened shovels, so they could murder Germans silently. And I should point out here that, like, the Soviet soldiers, being soldiers and also being Soviets, were drunk as hell. Through, and I would say this is for a good reason. They are given a daily vodka ration of 100 grams, but this kind of combat drives men insane, and hitting the bottle kept that at bay. Not to mention, there's one thing when it comes to shooting someone. You can have a detachment from that. But they were murdering each other with axes and shovels. It steeled their nerves before they went out at night to commit these horrible acts of violence in intimately close quarters. So outside of their daily ration, they began drinking antiseptic, uh, industrial ethanol, and antifreeze, which just passed through the filter of a gas mask first. Yeah, a lot of dudes went Uh, blind or died. I was thinking about this because I don't know if you're... It's a... 
good and bad movie, but based on a, a very, very, very good book. Um, the James Jones novel, The Thin Red Line, uh, is basically a fictionalized account of his experience on the Battle of Guadalcanal. And one of the details in there that I, I presume is pulled from real life because like so much of his war writing, and he, 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 he wrote two excellent war novels you should absolutely check out. One is famous, it's called From Here to Eternity, and the other one is called The Thin Red Line. In The Thin Red Line, one of the points he made is that similarly with American soldiers on Guadalcanal, what they discovered is that if you uh, got the field kitchen to leave you the syrup from... Uh, from cherries, like like canned cherries that they had in the field kitchen, you could or fruit cocktail, you could ferment it and make make alcohol, and that was what they were doing too, because they were doing close quarters combat in the fucking jungle against the Japanese, and it was also hell on earth. And so this doesn't surprise me at all. It's just also the, what you're describing. The Soviets in general, and particularly in their military, obviously had enough of a culture of like hard alcohol consumption that they were getting. Because I'm trying to do off the top of my head, like 100 grams, 100 grams and milliliters are basically the same. So. 100, uh, 100 grams of vodka a day is effectively equivalent to what, like one third of a can of Coke worth of vodka? Yeah. Um, so what's that about? And that's, that's not going to dent a Russian. No, that's about three and a half, four ounces of, <laughs> of, uh, of, of, of liquor. So like, uh, what's a shot? So one and a half ounce? So that's like, oh, yeah, so that's like, like that. two and a half, maybe three shots of, of vodka. So like, yeah, like you're saying, you got you to get that, gotta get on that good shit on that fucking ethanol. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, we did an entire episode in our Soviet-Afghan war series about how uh, Soviet soldiers uh, were very creative in their ways of getting boozed up. Um, and like that was not a new thing. It's I mean, culturally, it's still that way within the, the Russian military. And unfortunately, within like Soviet post-Soviet cultures, like heavy. Yeah, drinking. yeah, absolutely. Um, Whereas yeah. the U.S. now punishes and, like, it, but people still do it. As Francis has recounted yeah. in his uh, stories of making basically what Gatorade pruno prison hooch wine in iraq and yeah. in like fucking water cans i mean i definitely i definitely got my hands on alcohol in afghanistan for sure i was <laughs> Boy Scout. there was a weed plant growing outside of my window and i never i never touched i didn't, I didn't touch anything but i'm sure my soldiers did and you know what they can tell me now if they want to so shouts out i'm sure you guys were fucking either 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 up to the gills in alcohol or more likely hash so it is yeah. what it is now the infantry were not the only ones turning into urban warfare ninjas Anti-aircraft guns were hidden in cellars. Tanks were concealed in piles of rubble. Anti-tank guns were hidden in sewers. The entire city had been turned into an ad hoc death trap. This was aided by Chuikov, who quickly learned what his soldiers were good at and let them do it. After a while, the Germans would do their best to avoid all those fortified blockhouses and you know Soviet Alamos that they would create. So Chuikov arranged in the city in such a way that he would create specific paths that the Germans would have to take in order to get around them. These paths would be lined by Soviet soldiers, creating a miles-long complex ambush with anti-tank guns, machine guns, mines, and entire buried T-34 tanks, which would then funnel the Nazis directly towards the blockhouses that they were trying to avoid in the first place. Chuikov also came to the conclusion that, in these kind of battles, the most important weapons his soldiers could have were submachine guns, a sniper rifle, and a fuckload of grenades, and he ordered everyone to be equipped that way. Entire teams of submachine gunners were created in groups of eight and sent out to this, into the street to raise hell against German forces, who were still mostly armed with bolt-action rifles. That is the meat of the fighting and killing in Stalingrad, not major offenses uh, or, or attacks or counterattacks. It was the constant small rat wars fought between a hundred or so soldiers at a time at most. Of course, the kind of fighting didn't lend itself to large scale assaults, but also because on either side, the second a troop buildup was sighted, it got smashed with artillery or air power. 
since artillery couldn't be used on the front lines due to how close everybody was, the amount of fire that could be directed at these targets was always enough to obliterate them. However, that didn't stop Paulus from planning large-scale offensives in the north. Winter was coming, it was getting cold, and he needed to win something, so he aimed for the industrial heart of the city. That took the form of a salient that jutted out westward from the Volga River and was made up of the now infamous Red October Metalworks, the Barricati Weapons Factory, and the Stalingrad Tractor Factory. The fighting immediately turned chaotic as it had always been. This time, civilians are trapped in the middle. Now, in Soviet times, it was very common for workers to have apartments near or even attached to the factories that they worked in. And because these factories are all very important, none of them had been evacuated due to their jobs. So in the confusion of the fighting, they ran for their lives and were cut down by both sides. Despite the Soviets fighting tooth and nail, the Germans still took a little bit more ground at a time due to just crushing air superiority. The Soviets lost so many boats trying to get across the river for resupply runs and evacuate the wounded, they just couldn't do either of those things. And their anti-aircraft guns were firing so much, just trying to keep the Stukas and other planes at bay, they burned out their barrels. The few units that did successfully make the cross-river trip were immediately sent into completely destroyed factory areas to bolster their defense. Then... The Germans bombed the reserve oil tank near the river, which the Soviets had actually thought was empty, and it wasn't. <laughs> uh, and like, since they thought it was empty and nobody thought to double check it, Chuikov set his command cell up right next to it, and it turned out it wasn't empty at all. Uh, burning fuel poured out in every direction, and somehow this didn't destroy the command team, but did surround them and set the river on fire for a second time. When someone asked the command team over the radio, like their location, they literally just responded, quote, we are where all the fire is. It's like handshake with fucking the Cuyahoga River in 1974 and the Volga River in 1942. The Germans kept pressing towards the river and Chuikov struggled to hold on to little more than a thin strip of it. This was the entire lifeline of the Soviet defense. If they lost access to the river, they were done for. Hence why the saying, quote, for the defenders of Stalingrad, there is no ground on the other side of the Volga became something of a motto for the 62nd Army. Chuikov knew his men were being destroyed, and though they were causing a huge amount of damage to the Germans as well, he knew that he needed that to stay open to continue destroying them. Not only were the German casualties piling up, but their morale was plummeting. Even as they won, slowly crawling their way through the city block by block, to them, it didn't feel like they were defeating anybody. Soviet soldiers continued to attack them with near-suicidal zeal, and in more than one case, literally suicide-bombing a German tank without a second thought. Oftentimes, and especially nowadays, these soldiers are framed as steadfast Russian defenders of the motherland, but they weren't. Despite how propaganda and media likes to turn the Great Patriotic War into you know dogmatic shit show that it is today, and especially the Eastern Front and the Soviet Union as well, um, the vast majority of soldiers from the 62nd Army were not Russian. They were Central Asian and Caucasian, and they were treated like absolute shit by the racist Russian officers, Chuikov included. But they fought to certain death anyway. And as Chuikov put it, quote, in the blazing city, we don't suffer cowards. We don't have time or room for them. And that is where we'll pick up next time on Stalingrad part four. Two more parts to go. This is brilliant, dude. Like, uh, all right, all right, all right. I know I'm not supposed to look. I'm reacting to the content. I'm reacting to uh, all the stuff, adding where I can. But I'm just going to say in the rare moment where I do this, 
Joe, dude, this is great. This is riveting. Honestly, man, this is I'm 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 I feel like I'm just like, wow, I finally get it. I've read a lot of books about this stuff. I've read whether it's historic, you know, actual histories or fiction, but like now I'm kind of getting it in a way I wasn't before. I, I genuinely mean that because I'm just like, oh, why is is it talked about like this? Like it's because it literally was like make it impossible to engage with Blitzkrieg, basically. Make it so they've got to fucking fight for everything and then just mm, kill the shit out of them wherever you can. Like, I get why it has this vaunted status as like the worst thing in, you know, in military engagements like on the Eastern Front. I, I, I get it now. And Jesus, I mean, it's like you all like, you know, sine wave between like, wow, that's fucking ridiculous, funny. And wow, that's ridiculous, horrible. Yeah, it's like in, I believe it was part two where you had uh, a one-handed, had a, a soldier get his hand blown off. And, and so he just like filled his pockets up with grenades and was throwing, his, throwing grenades one-handed. Like out of the, out of the door of his, head, of, of his like company headquarters. It's unreal, man. It's <laughs> unreal. Yeah. So, I mean, um, wow. And it only gets colder and worse. That's what the that's that's the Eastern Front promise, and that's the promise of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I could use some cold, as it according to my computer, it is currently ninety six degrees Fahrenheit in my office. Yeah, I could use some some not cold because it's it, it's basically it, normally you have British summer, but what we've got right now is British every other time of year, and we're just getting it in late July. So, Roger that, Nate. Thank you so much uh, for coming on here for for part three. You'll be back for part four. But until then, where else can everybody find you? So obviously, I'm co-host of this show. So you should subscribe to the Patreon and get some of the bonus episodes even from before I was co-host because we got lots and lots of bonus content going way, way back to 2018. I also am the co-host of What a Hell of a Way to Die, a podcast about why you shouldn't join the military. And now recently about being a dad. Uh, I am the producer and co-host of Trash Future, a podcast about the tech industry being bad and ridiculous and stupid, uh, but also about Britain and just general sort of like zero interest rate loan VC funded scamming. And I am the producer of Kill James Bond, a podcast about movies by three incredibly funny trans people. Their names are Alice Caldwell Kelly, Abigail Thorne, and Devin. And they are great. They are really, really funny. I always laugh producing and editing that show. And you should check it out if you like movies. And if you dislike James Bond, because that was the premise, but then they were like, well, we have other movies we could watch. So all those shows all have free episodes uh, either every week or every other week. All those shows have Patreons with tons of bonus content. Uh, so check those out. And uh, if you're interested in hearing my voice or encountering my work as an editor. Um, and uh, until next time, Joe, I guess that's your line, but I'm thinking to myself, be prepared to whip up a corpse lasagna from scratch. <laughs> it, it, the noodles are the most important Gotta part. Gotta get the texture now, right. This is the only show that i host so thank you for listening if you like what we do here you can support supporting us on patreon and if you like things that i create consider checking out my books uh you can find them anywhere you find books uh and until next time enjoy your corpse lasagna it's hot and fresh